Hello and welcome to the Spoon Carving Conversations podcast, where I talk to spoon carvers from around the world about how and why they carve spoons. In this episode, I talk to Liesl Chapman. Liesl lives in Minneapolis and teaches at the North House Folk School. It was really fun to get to know Liesl and to find out why she is so enthusiastic about this craft and sharing it with others. With 10 years of experience and learning from many talented craftspeople such as Adam Hawker, Jane Mickleborough and many others, Liesl is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spoons and rosing specifically. I learned a lot and I really enjoyed the chat and I hope you do too. And if you do enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them to continue, you can do that by buying an Endless Possibilities Spoon Carving t-shirt through the link in the show notes. Hi, Lisa. So, yep, we're into it. Nice. Uh, thanks for meeting me and thanks for uh, agreeing to have a talk, first of all. Absolutely, Simon. Yeah. Yeah, I look, to be here. I look forward to it. Yeah, I, um, we spoke briefly. We had a little um, test run, you could say, with the with the Instagram video call just to, I like to see the people before and, and have a quick hello. So, yeah, thanks for joining me. And um yeah, I don't know so much about you. I only started following you kind of on Instagram uh, since a few months or so. But like I said, I'd seen your spoons and some of your work popping up. And um, yeah, it caught my, caught my eye. What definitely caught my eye was the um, coal rosing you were doing. The Maori <laughs> stuff was something that kind of jumped out as, uh, at me, being from New Zealand myself. So I was like, oh, who's doing this? Who's doing this uh, koru New Zealand Maori style coal rosing? So. Yeah. It jumped out, and something else was the um, then I looked a bit and was the coal rosing and the bowls of the spoon is something that you seem to do a lot of. Those were some mm-hmm. things that, yeah, caught my eye and I wanted to ask you about. Um, the coal rosing in the bowl, maybe we could jump in there. How, how does, how, how did that come about that you do so much of that, and, and why do you do that? Well, um, I started coal roasting. Uh, because I've been, uh, I'm 63. I, I know I sound and look much younger than that, but, uh, but I am, 60, I am 63. And uh, all my life, I've, I've uh, done pen and ink and some watercolor at a very small scale. Um, and I was a hand lettering artist, uh, in my twenties, an, an apprentice, I would say an, an apprentice hand lettering artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I started, um, when I started carving spoons and then being exposed to coal roasting, I thought, wow, what if I could translate my, my pen and ink kind of cartoon drawings um, that again, like I said, I've always worked at a small scale and I thought, wow, what if I could do that on spoons? That would be really fun. And I bet you I could, I could, uh, make some headway there. And I'm friends with Jared Dahl, who is, um, Wood Spirit, uh, that's his shop and his, his, uh, his professional handle. I'm friends with him. And he was like, oh yeah, you, you got to try, uh, uh coal roasting. And I started uh, experimenting just by wood burning or pyrography and seeing what that was like and made some headway. And he saw my wood burning. He's like, oh, you got to do that in coal roasting. Oh, okay. Um, And uh, and coal roasting uh, for if if anyone's listening, uh, just just what coal roasting is, it is like scrimshaw on wood. 
It is making a very small incision, not removing wood, just a, a cut, a very uh, controlled incision, maybe about a millimeter deep or something like that, and then filling that incision or cut with some kind of pigment. Um, coffee, cinnamon are are pretty pretty popular. It I think in early times coal was used, so coal mm-hmm. roasting is Norwegian for writing with coal, and uh. So you rub that pigment into the cut, and then that reveals the the design or the image that you've cut into the wood. And it works really well for spoons because it, um, like chip carving, that removes wood, and it's not so smooth on your lips, and it's also can be filled with like mashed potatoes and oatmeal and stuff like that. Whereas cold roasting is very smooth because you never remove the material and you're, you're burnishing and sealing that cut closed. So in old Norwegian and, and Swedish spoons, you see a lot of cold roasting in the bowl because it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't interfere with eating. It doesn't interfere with the feeling of the wood on your lips and I also, in my coal roasting designs, generally speaking, a spoon handle is very long and thin. And so that really constrains what you can do in terms of design on the, on the handle. And I've been working a lot r- recently in trying to make pleasing handle forms that are really wide. And it mm-hmm. turns out that really wide handles are also ergonomically pretty comfortable, especially for people that maybe have hand mobility or strength issues. So I've been exploring making wider handles that are aesthetically and physically appealing and then putting things in the bowls because you can just do more imagery in the bowls. So um, so that's kind of the way that I think about the interplay between the design of the spoon and what kind of coal roasting designs that you can put in a spoon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, you're right. You need a, enough surface because you're kind of yeah, limited, especially once you do detailed work. You can only work so fine before it gets too closed up in the image. Yeah. yeah. It gets a bit blurry. And, uh, and I always think of the coal roasting in my mind, it's something like a tattoo on wood kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a nice way to think about it too. Yeah, and the same with a real tattoo. Sometimes you see if it's jump all kind of pressed together, the image from a little distance just kind of looks blurry and doesn't have that same effect. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. okay. You have a lot of contrast. Yeah, and a bit of space between it. I've yeah. I p- tried a little bit of it myself, and a few times I've realized oh, I've tried I've tried tried to do too much, and mm-hmm. it gets a bit lost. So sometimes I think simplicity is better. And does the my question would be, does the coal roasting on the bolt, so that stays fairly well, even after use, I thought it would, it would, uh, it wouldn't stay that well, but obviously it does. Or, well, uh, there's, there's, of course, in any of our craft pursuits, there's, there's technique and, and uh, processes that come into play. Um, so, so um, how deep you cut it, affects Mm -hmm. how durable uh, the stain will be in it. Um, How deep you cut it also determines the boldness of the line. So if you want to do shading, you cut a little bit more uh, shallow cut. And then you, you burnish over, meaning you take something very smooth 
and rounded and hard, harder than the wood, and you 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 uh, press into the wood and rub it. And what that does is that that kind of seals the cut, uh, has the wood come back together along that edge, seals the cut, but you can still see the pigment. And then the finishing that I'm using lately that um, came to me uh, through my good friend uh, Dawson Moore, who goes under the Instagram handle Michigan Sloyd. He's both a spoon carver and a chair maker. And he's, he plays with finishes a lot. And um, so what I do is I prep the spoon with um, a pre-mixed half and half mixture of milk. Uh, uh, it's made by the real milk paint company, but uh, half and half tongue oil, half and half uh, citrus spirit. Um, and it's, like I said, it's pre-mixed and you rub on a very thin coat when the spoon is finished, but well, finished carving, but unfinished in terms of its finish. Yeah. Put a, put a layer on, very thin layer, let that cure overnight. If you don't have a kiln to cure it in, I do not have a kiln. I just put it on top of my radiator in my old house. And then the next day I put another very thin layer on it and I, I burnish in between. I rub it down with just with um, brown wrapping paper, rub it yep. down mm -hmm. and then put another thin coat, let that cure. And then that creates a pretty hard finish so that as you work, the as you rub the pigment into the cuts, it can also rub into open grain and that can also be really muddy. Mm -hmm. So um, the, 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 the half and half tongue oil puts a pretty good layer down so that it doesn't rub so much into any open grain. Yeah. And then I work as I colros, I'm drawing the image um, and putting the cinnamon in and using Mahoney's walnut oil um, because the, the tongue oil and spirits is just that, that would give you a headache in a hurry. So as I work on the spoon, I'm drawing, I'm cutting, I'm rubbing the pigment in, I'm rubbing a little bit of oil in and repeating that process over and over again, building up the image. Mm -hmm. And then when the image is all done, I let that the, the walnut oil cure a couple days. And then I put a couple more coats of um, very thin coats of, of the half and half tongue oil on it and then let that cure. And then that's a, that's a, that all of that was to answer the question that creates mm -hmm. a very durable finish that lasts and doesn't wash out. Yeah. And stays bright. Yeah. Okay. So there's, yeah, a lot. I'm just realizing, well, there's a lot for me to learn. <laughs> like all these <laughs> things, like so far I, I was with Michael Rosen. Yeah. Uh, cutting in, drawing my image and colorizing it in. And yeah, at the end with walnut oil and coffee, I also generally use rubbing yeah. it on. And that was kind of it and burnishing over. But right. yeah, these right. steps you've just uh, explained to me sound really useful in yeah, getting a really nice finish that will, yeah. that will uh, yeah. last for a long time. And wow. then I, think I also go deep enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the cuts that I make are approaching a millimeter deep for the bold lines, which means, yeah. of course, you can't erase them once you cut them. Yeah. But but too shallow a cuts will also, it just, it will be a very uh, f um, faded looking line. Yeah. And the idea that just is something else I've realized, I generally 
draw my whole image and then colorize the entire image and then oil and see kind of what happens. And you've just explained it that you oil and rub the the powder, the coffee or cinnamon as you go. So that probably yeah. helps you see your work, yes. what you've done, where you've missed a piece or something. Yep. Now that's, yep. uh, I don't yep. know why that never came to me, but right now I'm like, that makes perfect sense to see oh, see what, what what I've done so far. Yeah, I'm learning yeah, a lot. I cool. Up, <laughs> I build up the image. It's like um, if I'm doing a drawing mm-hmm. um, or I do a lot of Celtic knot work, um, so I I will draw the whole thing on and then kind of do the architecture, the major lines, and rub the coal, rub the pigment into that, which of course rubs off the rest of the drawing. Yeah. So it's it's like keep redrawing, keep redrawing, uh-huh. keep redrawing, which is kind of rehearses your hands for the cut. Um, but then there's also a sequencing of of, oh, if I have something that I've drawn in really well, I'm going to, I'm either going to start with that so I don't rub it off, or I'm going to wait and do that last so that I take my time with a tricky part. So there is a, a, a layering of the, and a sequencing of the lines that you cut to do complex work. To do complex work. And then you're yeah. mixing to get different kind of uh different features you're mixing the deep cuts and the shallow cuts and doing some shading and because if people haven't seen you you're doing yeah quite uh intricate images with kind of a 3d effects of animals and things and that's where yeah yeah, Yeah. where it really pops and and looks looks really great and yeah you do a lot of sorry go ahead well i was just gonna say the other thing that i've been playing with is um it makes a big difference what you draw the design with so if I draw it with a graphite pencil, the line will be very black. Uh, and so I've started using um, oil pencils and drawing with red, drawing with a light brown, drawing with a darker brown. I haven't really been satisfied with the greens and blues that I've tried, but yeah. I'm thinking about how to get a little bit of a color wash to it and been very happy drawing with um red and brown tones and what exactly do you mean a color wash does that color then stay a little bit in the image is that yes yes Uh that whatever you draw it with has a tendency to go into that cut especially the softer the material is um so i my what i generally sketch with um i know this is a podcast so people can't see but i'm just looking to read i'm grabbing some pencils here Mm. and i'm telling you what the what i use um i really like a blackwing 602 for a graphite pencil i've used heavier pencils i've used like really really soft ones and that makes a very black very cool image like i've done crows using a really black like 8b pencil um, but it's a little hard to control. And then the other ones that I've really liked are the poly, they're called polychromos, I think. Uh, they're Faber-Castell pencils. Um, yeah, poly, polychromos, Faber-Castell okay. polychromos. And, and they're, an oil, uh, they're an oil-based pencil that you can get very sharp. I mean, just like any pencil, you can sharpen it way yeah. down to a very sharp point. And then the color from these colored pencils, they kind of, they go into the cut, 
But yeah. but also on the surface, if there's open end grain or not so much, that gets washed off. So it's kind uh, of like a tattoo in the fact that you're putting yeah. colors it into is, the cuts. Yeah, it is very much like a tattoo. And the more you prep the wood uh, and have knowledge of the grain of your wood, the more that you can predict uh, how much will go into end grain. The, mm-hmm. the treatment that, that I've found uh, prevents is the most preventative for going into end, end grain. In addition to what I described with the, with the half and half tongue oil is to simmer the spoons in nonfat milk. Okay. For, yeah. For, you know, it doesn't really matter how long, maybe 10 minutes, maybe more, just yeah. a light simmer in nonfat milk. And what that does is, is milk has a milk protein called casein, which yeah. is like a plastic. It's long chains of proteins and that those adhere to the wood. And then you can burnish, take them out, rub them off, uh, make sure that you get all the milk kind of crud off it. Don't use fat milk because you don't want the fats. You just want the proteins. Mm -hmm. And then rub that off, let it dry, burnish it, and then oil it. And that gives a very... that that is food safe and it and it uh it it is i think keeps the coal roasting the most bright okay oh great great tips yeah craziness I'm, yeah so you're down the deep I'm, hole my mind. I'm like this is like a class for me i'm making notes i'm gonna have to listen back myself and uh <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. The level, like with something like this, how how much you can learn. And how how then did you, I mean, trial and error, but you, I've seen that's one thing too, looking through your feed, you have had a lot of contact from other like uh, makers and carvers and you seem to be, you're very much kind of in the scene of spending time face to face and learning and sharing. And so these kind of things, some of it you came up with yourself or some was learned from other people or is it a mixture of both well um you know there aren't many coal roasters out there to tell you the truth we're there there aren't many of us and we're not close by each Mm. other Mm -hmm. um so there's uh don nelzetti he's i'm hoping i'm pronouncing his last name right uh he's on the east coast there's lydia and i'm forgetting her last name in the uk there's adam hawker in the uk there's ty thornock in i think he's in iowa now um a few others but those are the ones that kind of come to my oh um uh, murphy what's what's his first name nick murphy uh Mm -hmm. also in the uk um and so we it's not like we've spent time together but but I do reach out and I follow them on Instagram and and um as uh, I, and I and then I try to have a lot of people's spoons um mm-hmm. because I really I I believe that these objects that we make uh that they they transcend the space-time continuum and uh, so, um, you know, you think about the Lascaux Caves in France, and if I could be in there and I could reach out and touch them, it would just be one touch separating me over 20,000 years of, you know, and I get, I get goosebumps just thinking about yeah. it. So if I have many people's work, 
that they speak to me through their work. I can see, oh, how did, I can see the chatter of a knife, um, which, which helps me think about how did they, how did they move their hands through that cut? Um, uh, and, and then trying to sequence out what was the sequence of cuts they made and trial and error. Um, you know, sometimes you remove too much wood too early and then you can't, there's another move that you can't make because you don't have the wood to make the move. Um, so, so the objects teach me, mm-hmm. uh, before, before coronavirus, um, I took all the classes that I could. I, I'm a full-time professional, so um, it gets mightily in the way of my carving. I'm really looking forward to, to retirement. But I've taken classes with Jane Mickleborough, who makes the most fantastic wax inlay French folding spoons in the – I mean, she's just a master. Yeah. And I've taken, a, I've taken a class with her, and I keep in communication with her. I've taken a class with Adam Hawker, which really boosted my, my carving and seeing a new style of spoon. I've studied with, with uh, Jared Dahl and Fred Livesay um, in my spoon carving world. And then I'm connected to North House Folk School. I'm so lucky to live in Minnesota, and North House Folk School is up on the northern shore of, of Lake Superior. And taking a lot of classes up there. And, and now I teach uh, there. I'm going to be teaching at Wood Week, uh, which is an annual event in May. That's just a celebration of carving uh, all, all manner of greenwood uh, craft and a week of classes and, and skill sharing and stuff like that. So those are some of the ways that I stay connected with the, with the community virtually and in person. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, and this school you're talk you just spoke of Norfolk um, North House North Folk, House Folk School North Folk House School Folk and what school. exactly uh, are they doing there like this crafting stuff or, or I don't I haven't heard of it before so you could maybe it's, explain a bit what happens yeah there. I would say it's one of the handful of really I I would say preeminent craft schools in the U.S. And it, it is right on the shore of Lake Superior. They have a really good informative website where you can see the classes. So if you just Google North House Folk School, mm-hmm. you'll get there. And they do all manner of craft. They do fiber arts. They do wood arts. They do blacksmithing, um, uh, uh, photography, nature n- n- you know, tracking and, and, uh, they have a, they have a schooner, uh, that they take out onto the lake. So they're sailing stuff. They do timber framing, um, classes on building yurts, um, just a full range of, of traditions. And, and they are, uh, I would say anchored in Northern craft, I think is the thread that runs through it. Northern, uh, meaning, meaning, uh, Scandinavian craft, Northern um, East European um, and and Northern uh, Indigenous people to the to North America. Okay, and it's a school. Like, uh, can anyone adults can you sign up for like workshops yep. or is it ongoing classes? How does that work? They have classes Children. that are yeah. You you sign up for a class. You you oh. go there. Um, and Grand Marais is just a absolutely beautiful little town. Um, right on Lake Superior. And Lake Superior, for people who might think, oh, it's just a lake, it's an inland sea. 
Um, the, name, like the name tells you how good it is. So people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... It, you, you can't see across the horizon. It's very cold. Yeah. Um, I think that there are some people that on a on a very rough day manage to surf Lake Superior. Oh, wow. So it's, it's a big, wild body of water. And so Grand Marais sits um, – it's, it's just – maybe an hour, hour and a half away from the Canadian border. So it's very North. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and it's just beautiful. They have a collection of buildings, uh, a, a lot of old buildings um, and uh blacksmith shop and things like that. And, and uh, a store that has fabulous collection of books and tools and uh, craft that instructors have made. Um, and so they, it, they don't have housing there at this point. I don't know if they have, uh, any plans to get housing, but you need to to either camp or or find some place to stay, and then the classes generally run a a weekend or sometimes the intense class like timber framing or yurt building or things like that run a week long or something like that. Yeah, take they take longer some of those things. Wow, that sounds like a yeah super place to uh, meet trip. people into it. Worth the trip, yeah. That sounds awesome. And you've traveled, did you, the people you mentioned before, Adam Hawker and some of these Mm -hmm. people you've um, learned from in person, did uh, Mm -hmm. they come there to teach or did you, have you spent some time traveling to to go and learn from some of these people? Um, I was just getting set to travel and learn from people and then that damn COVID (laughs) thing. Um, But but Adam and Jane uh, traveled to Minnesota and taught at the Milan Spoon Gathering. It looks mm-hmm. like Milan, but it's Milan, pronounced yeah. Milan. In western Minnesota, <laughs> the town is only about 300 people, and it's the in the middle of the prairie. Um, but it attracts this fantastic spoon gathering that's maybe about 200 people. And uh, they've managed to bring in... Um, uh, international uh, sweep of, of folks. Every year they bring in someone to do a, a, a great class, and so I always, I always watch for that. And that's how I've had the had the the great privilege of of studying under Jane and Adam, and then I've become friends with them, yeah. uh, dear friends with them. So yeah, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I'm. I kind of started right as the the whole COVID thing kicked off, so I really haven't experienced this whole. Um, yeah, the side of it, the real face-to-face community. Yeah. There's the the rise yeah. up and things, which is really cool, which I jump on yeah. every now and again. But yeah. I really, really look forward to yeah, meeting people and and hanging out and doing that because isn't that part of it? I can imagine I'm for yeah. me, it's just myself and I enjoy it anyway, regardless. But I just can imagine, and I've seen some photos from Spoonfest would yeah. be something a bit closer. That looks sure, like sure. a really good time. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. But the one advice, if you start doing this, is there comes a time when you have to put the knives in sheaths as you start to drink beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Good advice. Yeah. Sharp tools and, uh, yeah, parties. with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, funny. Have you been to Spoonfest? Did you get a chance to do that? I have not. Yeah. I have not. And Jane Mickleborough has a has a f- uh, uh, her own small festival in France in April, um, and I was really hoping to do some of those things, and then COVID came along. So I'm mm. I'm just looking for the opportunities, and also looking um, because I uh, like you 
have family in New Zealand. And then because of my family in New Zealand also have kind of extended family in Australia, I'm like, oh, I would, I would love to, to, uh, center some some craft in the you know rekindle nz and and the um lost lost trades in in um near melbourne i think it is so i i'm very interested in moving in in that direction i've i've yeah. seen a lot of a, a lot of um craft but have not done craft in new zealand i mean yeah. not, nothing beyond myself you have done it while you're there, uh, but never yeah. okay in that kind of setting. Yeah, rekindle. Yeah. I think that's a festival not far from where my sister is in Golden Bay, where it sounds mm-hmm. like a similar thing. I haven't been there, but crafts, uh, yeah, in a bigger sense. But um, yeah. oh, that yeah. would be really cool. What yeah. about have you carved um, New Zealand woods? Because that's something I haven't done yet, and I'm thinking like, oh, that because I'm very interested in the the wood itself. Like for me, that's a totally fascinating part of it chopping open a piece of wood and and that for me is like so exciting i've spoke about it before but for me that's like ah, i get so energized um, and excited chopping into a piece of wood and in new zealand they have a lot of native trees i know from the outside but like as far as carving goes i've got no experience um yeah have you yeah a little bit um i i have a compact carving kit that travels with me when when i go places and um so I have carved um Sydney wattle which is uh in the in the eucalyptus family and mm-hmm. a little it's a little bit brittle um but not hard to carve I've carved um uh pahutakawa mm-hmm. um which is the New Zealand Christmas tree a very beautiful beautiful tree very very uh twisted twisted limbs and around uh, in mid-December, it flowers with these beautiful red flowers, um, and it's a it grows along the coast, uh, so it's a very you know it, it it looks like a coastal tree, like as yeah. you know formed by the winds and all those kinds of things. And um, uh, we stayed at a place that that had some kind of green pahutakawa in as as firewood and everyone was like you know you shouldn't be cutting down pahutakawa trees but there it was and so i just grabbed some and i i tried some kayak spoons um it was it was very tough because it was not that green it was just green enough for me to try Mm -hmm. and then um and then my nephew sent me um he in in his family uh, of friends, one of the dads is a furniture restorer, and he had offcuts of uh, cowrie wood, and he so he sent me a little box of offcuts of cowrie wood, yeah. and I and I've done some knife handles with the cowrie wood, and then um, uh, probably the most most she's uh, so exciting. I, I, words are going to fail me. The cowrie tree, as as you uh, no doubt know, is a it's a very important spiritual tree. It's a a tree that um, for people that haven't seen it that that is rivals redwoods and sequoias. It's a massive, massive tree, and it was 
I'm I'm just going to use the word hunted to extinction practically yeah. by shipbuilders. Yeah. And so, you know, these three, 4,000, some of the trees that were cut down were 10,000-year-old trees um, to make boats and timbers and stuff like that. Um, and, and over time, my partner Aaron and I, when we've – so we've been to New Zealand many times visiting my family mm. and um, have gotten to know um, – gotten to know the the trees and the and the sacred stories of those trees and the destruction of those trees i i can feel myself getting very emotional right now um and so the the last time we were there and talking with my niece's uh family in in um Mangaway, uh her father-in-law said, well, we have Kauri trees that that we are in the pasture, ancient trees that were, uh, I don't know when they were felled or when they tipped over, but they've just been laying there like, like, like the bones of a whale on a shore, you know? And, yeah. and there are, there are very special stories about the relationship between the cowry tree and the whale about why their bark looks the way it looks. And um, I, I, I won't, it's not my place to tell those stories, but they are very moving stories. And so seeing these cowry trees in the field and he said, you can have some of that wood. So we went out and uh, cut, some of the wood off these hulking, you know, uh, trunks and uprooted limbs. And, uh, and I was, uh, no one, no one noticed them as I came through, uh, customs. In the US. <laughs> yeah. And so I brought back pieces and, mm. um, made a pair of matched knife handles, uh, one for Aaron and one for me and still have a little bit of the material left to, to make these. And then I worked with my friend, uh, Robert Burns, who's a knife maker. And he made, uh, took some of that wood and made a very beautiful puko knife for me. And he found a little bit of whalebone to put on the keeper for the knife. So, wow. so that's my, that's a little bit of my experience with the cowrie tree. Yeah. Very soft, uh, dreamy wood to carve. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up there, so I kind of took it for granted. I think it was like, it's often the case, right? When you grow up as yeah. a kid and you know it, it's just kind of normal. But yeah, it's yeah. since probably that I moved away and yeah, working more with, with wood again that I kind of, yeah, think back on it very fondly. Like my, yeah. my dad lives very really close to Tane Mahuta, the biggest oh. tree he's we used to go oh. for walks there like uh yeah on the weekends or we were in the Hokianga not far away and oh my yeah, goodness now looking oh goodness. back I realize what a what a special place that is yeah yeah so, I yeah I, I yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm to hear you say Tane Mahuta is very that, yeah. that's a shared thing for for you and me yeah and so it's, yeah, I was going to ask you about this and you've kind of answered my question while talking like, yeah, being sentimental about the things and you obviously are. <laughs> and I never thought of myself as sentimental with stuff, with objects. I never, re 
ever kind of experienced that so much, but I've had a few moments now where I've carved yeah through the through the carving the trees like I've had a piece of um, wood from my wife's parents' place. They have an apple tree and they spent a long time working on the house and put like labor of love to to bring this house back and um, yeah this old apple tree and they cut a branch. We've now got a a little tree hut for our daughters in there and I was like oh I have to carve a piece of wood for this Uh, I have to carve this piece of wood and I carved a few spoons and like this is like I can't sell this I have to give this to them and keep one for myself and yes so it's funny I've realized like for some reason but in another sense I'm like it's just a piece of wood it's just a spoon was my kind of when I think about it rationally but for some reason, I'm starting to get sentimental. Maybe I'm getting old. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. No, Did you always have this center, like this thing about special objects since you were younger? Or, Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a curious thing to think about because uh, there's a difference between this. Uh, I'm going to call it a spiritual attachment mm-hmm. and, and materialism. Right. So like, do you want a thing because it's valuable and it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or it does it does it connect to your heart? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I grew up, my, my dad was a, a history teacher and collected, uh, he collected silver spoons. And oh. I never thought about it like, oh, spoons have been in my in somewhere in my psyche for like yeah. all my all my life, and I've been looking <laughs> at spoon forms. Um, but I've always had some attachment to things that have uh, deep stories mm-hmm. with them. I think it's the stories that connect mm-hmm. us, and sometimes the stories get separated from the objects. But I think the objects still, in some way, carry those stories anyway. Um, so I think, I think that is, that is, that is what, uh, that is what connects me. And I, and I think I've had that for, I don't ever remember being without that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we probably have it. A lot of us had it more as children. I see it in my children now who like have to bring home this special stone and we have a pile of sticks and stones and really kids seem to have have this because um yeah they see something in it and it means something yeah. to them and yeah <laughs> I mean there's only our pile every now and again we kind of get rid of a few <laughs> so we don't have oh sure too oh, many sure. here but um but yeah I think it is something that that we might have when we're younger and then your kind of rational mind you might grow out of it but by by making things yourself I think we can definitely keep this because we have a story now when you carve a spoon you I remember where I got the wood and the type of wood and it's yeah yeah, can and people love knowing that stories when 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 they get a spoon from you they they love knowing what the story is and I love knowing what the story is when I have special spoons of where it came from or 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 who gave it to me under what what when what mm. what was the situation? All those things are special. And then and then my dog who's sleeping right down here, my do- and my dog will chew up a spoon and <laughs> um, uh, and then I take you know I have a s- spoon that I had put all this work into and she chewed the handle. So then the tur- the bowl of the spoon turns into a pendant and I call them the Day of the Dead spoons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you showed me that, mommy. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And so generally that's kind of your way of dealing with something that gets, yeah, like broken in this case from the dog or, I mean, when you're carving, sometimes it something splits or goes oh, wrong. Yeah. Generally yeah. you're more of a, I think there's probably more, some people that are more like, ah, this didn't go to plan and they toss it or you see people burning yeah. things and, yeah. and stuff. That's not really, you'll normally try and, um, if I, can sell, if I can salvage it, I will. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a fatal crack is a fatal crack and a, yeah. and a, and a, uh, spoon that's, that's brutally <laughs> chewed is yeah. not capable. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, if I can save it, I do. And I also will hang on to things so that when I'm teaching, I can, I can show things to people like, oh, here's what went wrong. Or, uh, or I might split a spoon in half so you can see in cross section, you know, what thicknesses are and things like that. So, um, mm. yeah, so I, I'm not overly sentimental about it, but I just, I, I, I don't know. I find if they hang out around long enough, I find some use for them. Yeah. Or they remind me of how far I've come sometimes too. Yeah, true. I'm, I'm going through this a bit myself now. I've, I started. I tried to carve my first cooks. I actually, I, I could say the second one, but I'm calling it my first like proper attempt, and it's split like down the handle it's drying and I'm kind of at the stage like should I just leave it now and leave it at that or am I going to keep carving it and try and learn something more from it I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do yet that's why I ask how you kind of yeah deal with the the times where it doesn't quite go to plan yeah uh, and cracked cracked bowls those you know that that's a different animal because for me, when I've I've done a little bit of turning and a little bit of uh, cooks of carving and things like that, and that's a lot of work. And it's there is a lot of skill and technique in drying mm-hmm. it. Um, so I I and I have lots of bowls from other makers, and occasionally they split, and then I it's like okay, well now this doesn't it's something that doesn't hold liquid anymore, but it can yeah. hold it can hold. Uh, rice or it can hold uh you know dried things or rings or you know things like yeah. that yeah so far that's my i've carved a few little bowls and they just end up with the uh, hair clips and those little bits and pieces that are always laying around kind yep. of yep. <laughs> yeah those yep. things yeah and so um yeah cool so you have played with yeah different of making different objects as well but it's mostly uh spoons you're carving is that fair to say that Currently. is fair to say. I've yeah. done a little bit of flat plane carving, um, and I like it, and I, I may do more of that. Um, I've done a little bit of – I took I, I have taken a class in a spring pole lathe, and I made two bowls that survived, and that was like the hardest thing I think I've ever tried to learn how to do. It was physically exhausting, mentally exhausting. It's really hard. Really yeah. Hard. Um, but I um, – and I've done work in birch bark and then knife handling. So I've made birch bark uh-huh. boxes and weaving and stuff like that. Um, but I I don't have any power tools. So uh, and I live in I live right in the middle of a city. So um, so spoon carving works really well for me because uh, you know all I need to do for spoon carving I can carry in a backpack pretty easily or, or less. Yeah. I can do it at work. I can, so, you know, if the if the trees are being taken down or there's a storm, I can go by and 
And uh, I used to bicycle uh, when I was bicycling to work. Now I'm working remotely, but I would bicycle to work and I always had a saw in my in 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 my saddlebag. And so if I passed by a tree that was had been taken down, I'd get out my saw and just take a piece <laughs> home and, and work on it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so spoon carving, spoon carving is uh, really a, a niche for me. I really enjoy it, and I like, I like, uh, I like the sensuousness of a spoon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it, it's very personal. You touch it with your hands, and it brings nourishment to your mouth, and it touches your lips, and so it's very. Um, it should be. It should be just so pleasing. In every way, it should be pleasing when you touch it, when you look at it, when you eat with it. It's a very intimate object. Yeah. Um, so, so I really I like that. I was I think I mentioned at some point, or maybe I didn't. I can't remember that I was a hand lettering artist when I was in my twenties. And spoons are three dimensional letter forms. You know, all the sweeping curves and and they're they're just they're beautiful letter forms, three dimensional letter forms. And then I can do this coal roasting on them. So they're, they're like, and I've always worked at a small scale. Mm-hmm. So they're just a sweet spot for me uh, so, from so many facets. Uh, I think that's why I'm attracted to them. Yeah. Yeah, the practicality of it. Yeah, not, not needing much space. That's the same for me too. Mm-hmm. And what, how, how, what exactly do you mean with it like a 3D lettering form? Like, can you explain what you mean by yeah. that a bit further? Yeah. So if you think about the the shape of a bowl and um, and the if you want the symmetry of a bowl that you can think of that as as uh, how you might make a letter Q or how you might make an O. Um, If you think of a, a spoon in profile as having you know, it tips up at the bowl and then it comes back and it might bend back around that that's an S form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and S forms with those changes in directions, um, they're, they're very challenging to make a beautiful form like that, um, to, to kind of dial it in. Um, uh, really beautiful letter forms. Um, uh, like if you think of a serif, a, a serif form is is when you have a letter that has like little feet on the bottom of it. It, it. You have an eye and it sticks out at the bottom and it curves out at the top. That's called a serif. That's also and, the one people, uh, sorry to interrupt, chip carve no, a lot of. Is that right? The, this kind of yes. chip carving people do a lot of the serif form. Okay, I haven't yes. heard of that either. Yes. That's cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And those forms, the, I, I, I apprenticed under just a, a he was a brilliant brilliant hand lettering artist. And he always used to say the most beautiful letter forms, there isn't a straight line anywhere that you just have these very subtle curves. Uh, if you imagine the letter I with this little, you know, feet at the bottom and a little hat at the top and that the long lines that come up that, that if those have ever so graceful a curve and flare out at the top and the bottom very subtly like that's what makes a letter form come alive and for me it's the same thing with a spoon if you have a narrowing at the neck um uh i'm gonna i know this is a podcast and you can't see this but i'm gonna 
try to describe what I see, that you you have a broad handle at the top and maybe it comes down and there's a narrowing at the neck and then it flares out. Um, Adam Hawker's spoons are like this. So it's a very popular with a lot of spoons. It flares out at the bottom with a little niche right up right up near the bowl. And that that's like a serif form. So so mm-hmm. so the 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 narrow neck right right next to the bowl you can think of very much as a letter form. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you look at it from the side and you see, you know, an S curve coming from the tip of the bowl to the back, you may also see something that looks like a like a like a very gentle C curve. Um, in profile, if you have a, like a dolphin spoon or or something like that, um, so all of all of those things to me are, if I think of it as letter forms, it helps me dial in. Oh, where do I get the grace and the movement? And I'm not saying I always get the grace and the movement, but it's what I strive for. Yeah, ah, that makes sense. Yeah, to see it like like that. Okay, ah, interesting. Yeah, and. Um... Going back to the the coal rosing again, maybe wanted to ask you. Yeah, you you were doing or are doing a sort of Celtic patterns, some tribal yeah. Mary patterns, and also um, animals. Did you did you do you kind of jump between those different things as the ideas come to you? I think Perhaps. so. I think so. I um, kind of in those three different areas that you've described. Um, uh, I I really like the challenge of uh lately of trying to see if I can capture animals and birds uh in 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 the uh usually in the bowl because that's where you, you need a little bit of space. And so that's just enjoyable for me and it's translating kind of what my pen and ink drawings were and I I actually think I'm I'm better in some ways at coal roasting animals than I am at drawing them. It's it's a curious thing. I, I'm like, oh, I'm really surprised that turned out. Like <laughs> I recently did an otter and I was very surprised that uh, that it turned out the way it turned out. Cold roasting is very high risk because there's yeah. no eraser. There's, yeah. There's, and Apart from on, the, the, sorry, the knife, I've had it a few times. I don't know if this is something you ever have done or recommend, but I can remember doing a few times on the handle and like, oh, I wasn't happy with it at all and I had enough material. So I cut it all off but i guess if you're going deep that you can only do that so many times yeah and, and in the bowl not so much yeah and if you're going if you've if you've really got a finished form that you've yeah if you cut away material you alter the shape of it and yeah. so um but uh then the celtic forms i've been fascinated with since i was jays in high school at least and have um uh, worked at various points in my life, returned to them and been interested in them. And it's only in maybe the past 10 years that I've uh, had the uh, found the resources and the practice to do the real, the animal forms where the animals are just like all twisted and their legs are bent backwards. And, uh, oh, I just love them. And so I've been really working hard. Uh, first, I was drawing them. And um, drawing them and, and 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 doing a lot in color, and then I was like, oh, can I translate this? First, I tried, can I translate it to wood burning? And then I thought, can I translate it to um, coal roasting? And it's um, and I can I can cut a smoother line in coal roasting than I can draw, 
It's yeah. very yeah. curious. I, I, my drawing of knots is very belabored. Um, and the coal-roasting, I think I do so much rehearsing in laying it out that then when I start coal-roasting it, it's, uh, I've, I, again, I've been kind of surprised that they've turned out reasonably well. So that's been kind of a, a, a long interest. And then the, you know, the designs that are influenced uh, by Maori forms, um, boy, I, I have, uh, uh, I, I, I know that I skirt on the edge of what is, what is respectful and what is appropriation. And I, I, um, uh, I'm I'm fascinated with the forms. Um, when Aaron and I we've we've spent really a lot of very intense time, particularly in Rotorua, but also around Tane Mahuta, um, uh, spending time with Maori people. Um, I have uh, Maori uh, tattoo work. Um, that for me is is incredibly spiritual. So I I I when I use those designs, I'm never copying other people's designs, but I'm just trying to what is the fluidness of the fern form and the the koru form and and thinking about how that form appears in Celtic places. It 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 it, it appears in Neolithic places. So um so I try to channel what is what is the archetype of these images, and if I put them on spoons, um, uh, I, they're not spoons that I sell, um, and they for me are just connecting me to my family and this place very far away and this place that's very important to me. So that's that's a little bit of of how it's how it's come to me and how I think about those forms of design. Yeah, connects you back to yeah your family. Oh, that's that's nice. Uh, I didn't I didn't know that. No, just I seeing an image. Um, you don't always yeah get kind of what's behind it. That's why yeah I really enjoy yeah meeting these makers and like we're doing to yeah, yeah figure out the whys. Yeah. Um, yeah. How long? So how long have you been doing this? How long? When did you carve your first spoon? I carved my first spoon. I'm going to pause here for a second. My dog yeah. wants to go Okay, out. sure. Take two seconds. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. Um, I, I started spoon carving maybe maybe 10 years ago, something like that. Yeah. And it, was, it was very funny. I was, um, I was with... Um, Uh, I, I there's a there's a large beautiful park near my house called Powderhorn Park, uh, and um, Powderhorn um, Powderhorn's the neighborhood where George Floyd was murdered. Um, so I live in a live in a place that's very complex and very beautiful um, and very uh, rough around the edges, which is what I love. And uh, it's just a it's just a wonderful, wonderful neighborhood. And we have a small lake, uh, urban lake, very close. And there's an art fair that happens, well, pre-pandemic, there was an art fair that would happen every summer. And uh, art and craft. 
And so there was a bowl turner there. And um, I was, I don't know if you know what a utilikilt is, but it's a, it's a kilt that has like lots of pockets in it. It's, it's, it's like a, like carpenter's pants, only it's a kilt. And I okay. was wearing my kilt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, looking very, very. You were um, wearing a kilt, so you obviously already were. What you were ready for something, or had you already been doing? Oh, I'm always ready. I'm <laughs> always ready, Simon. That's I'm always right. ready for an adventure. Good one. And so I, I'm wearing my kilt. Yeah. And I have, um, and uh, you're going to laugh at this, but I have a very small Grand First Brooks axe, the mini hatchet, that's only about ten ounces total. Which I was using for everything. Like, you know, I could cut apples with it. I could, I was ready to do anything because I had this <laughs> little axe and I had this axe on my kilt. Yeah. And um, so cutting up interesting profile. And <laughs> so I see, I go this, this Turner, Wood Turner, Cooper is his name. And Cooper looks at me, he's, I think, about half my age. And he's he 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 eyes me up and down, and he's like, "Well, what do you, what do you have an axe with? Do you carve spoons with that axe?" And I said, "No, I do I I do lots of things with my axe. <laughs> Waxing poetical about cutting potatoes with my axe and being able to cut kindling." At a moment's notice, even though I live in the middle of the city. And so he he thought I was, I think, fairly humorous. But he was like, well, you should carve a spoon with that axe. Have you ever carved mm-hmm. a spoon? I said, no, I've never carved a spoon. And he said, well, come on. And he's a green wood turner. And he also has carved spoons. He lives in Grand Marais. He teaches at the folk school. And he had a chopping block set up there in the park. And he gave me my first tutorial on on axing out a spoon and working with it. And so I went home with like a kind of finished spoon and I just was like taken with it. And I, I don't even, I, I don't have the spoon anymore. Cause I think a dog ate it, but I have pictures of it. And when I look back on it, I'm like, how the hell did I even do that? I, I, I don't even know how I did it, but I just kept working on it and using every kind of tool I could think of to, to carve it and came up with a reasonable spoon. Then I showed it to another Turner who's a friend of mine. And, and he said, that was your first spoon. (laughs) Well, you're a spoon carver and (laughs) you better, you know, you better get a really good ax and stuff. And that's kind of what, what started it. Um, And that was, I think in the vicinity of about 10, maybe 12 years ago and uh, just working steadily at it ever since. But I would say over the past, five years I've really like uh worked really hard at it and and uh very um been very persistent and tried to push myself and you know really tried to make sure that I'm learning from people and I have a, a me- one of my mentors Fred Livesay who's a very very good spoon carver um lives here and I said Fred would you be my mentor and and help me with things and so um yeah it's just a labor of love yeah, well, wow, that's cool. That's such a good uh, origin story. <laughs> that's <laughs> just so funny to imagine <laughs> you with your kilt, with your axe. Yeah, you were like prime, ready to go. You had your axe. You yeah. were yeah. perfect. And well, then- and I, I got to tell you that that it was near that time also 
about 10 years ago that when Aaron and I would go to New Zealand, we, we went with um, folding bicycles. Yeah. And so we were in Rotorua with our folding bicycles and our utilicilts and our big Western Stetson hats as we were riding our bicycles with like wood carving tools. And, and, and I tell you, you start a lot of conversations yeah. um, when people see you, they're interested. And that just opened many, many doors uh, in particular um, uh, into, into uh, making Maori friends. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> quite, I mean, it's similar to what happened with you, how you explained that this, uh, this person you met was outside and yeah, doing it there and, and kind of showing it. Otherwise you, you may have never gone to look for it. I mean, who has right. the idea out of the blue? I think it's something yeah. you have to, yeah, kind of see and then spark, spark something. Yeah. Huh? So that's yeah. a really cool yeah. thing to do it. I want to do it in summer, but I uh, go out to the park and uh, I kind of hide away in the foresty part of the park. And sometimes someone comes through or a kid comes and um has a look at what I'm doing. Here's me axing and they come and generally people are, yeah, super interested, but I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'll venture out a little bit more. Yes, the public venture and, out, uh, venture out, Simon, venture yeah. out. Yeah. And so do you still do that somewhere around you? Like carving, where do you do your axe work? Is that at home? Do you have a yard or how to? I, I do have a yard. Um, yeah. In the summertime, I axe outside. Uh, it's Minneapolis. So uh, like, you know, yesterday it was like nine below when I woke up. So mm. Fahrenheit, which is which is cold. Um, so I have a little space uh, that that is both where I work. I've been working virtually for the like like the whole universe for well, not the whole universe, but many people have been working virtually. I'm so fortunate that I have a job that I'm able to do virtually. Um, and so I, I have have my space set up here with all these electronic kinds of things, but also a chopping block. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. So it's keep really it balanced. <laughs> yeah, keep the it balanced. <laughs> but I always carved at work. Um you know, I'd be in long meetings and I would just lay out a, 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 you know, four foot by four foot ground cloth beneath my chair. And I would just carve during long meetings. Cause what, otherwise if I'd you don't through. mind me asking, uh, what, what was the work that you're doing? The, I, I work at this, um, at a museum and, yeah. uh, and my group does work on organizational change, helping, helping, uh, organizations, uh, with inclusion, diversity, equity, access, and leadership stuff. So we're right in the social justice, trying to make the the world just for everyone who lives on this planet, which okay, is yeah. like a giant, that's a giant thing that I just said, but it begins with relationships and understanding mm-hmm. and, uh, experiences that people have. Yeah. And so, then so it wasn't, I guess you, once you do it a few times, people know like, ah, oh, Liesl, yeah, she's carving it. And then it's, kind of accepted yeah. and yeah it's yeah. not not such a, a big thing to be doing something like yeah, that and i talked <laughs> with the director of security at the museum i said hey richard is it okay that i have a, a have a knife and he said oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> short and sweet good that's all i need to know <laughs> yeah he just he just said it was okay yeah so, yeah, it's funny no. the places we sometimes end up. I spoke to one guest um, from Sweden, and he invented the sloidy pong 
which is the name for this thing. And it's kind of a hoop and he stitched them himself and he, he's released plans for people to make their own, which is really cool. And it's kind of like an apron and a hula hoop, if you can imagine, with a kind uh-huh. of uh, material net, which catches your wood chips. And he says, oh, <laughs> then nobody can give me grief, even if you're like on a train or something. I was like, oh, that's oh, I love a- it. Yeah, so it. public carving. I mean, that's the big critique you could say if you're if you're in the cinema. I don't know where you might be carving, but wood chips. But this kind of takes care of that problem. So oh, I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, great idea. <laughs> and I carve with kids in my neighborhood. I've been teaching teaching kids how to carve, and and uh, you know, I, kids love knives. Yeah, and uh, you know, and and learning how to use a knife safely is is really good and and I'm also just really aware of of and there are some people uh uh black kids in my neighborhood that if they if if someone saw them with a knife it would it would be life threatening for them so mm. um you know uh how do how do we work with kids and keep them safe in all manner of ways um but also let them explore things that are risky yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally important. Yeah, give them some responsibility, right? And once you give them some responsibility, I think they feel like, ha, yes, uh, yeah. kind of empowered and by that. And that's something I try to do with my my own children, like not be too afraid to let them yeah, yeah try things and, and, yeah, be responsible for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, super cool. And one question I wanted to ask you then I asked other people and I think about it myself how it is because a lot of people I've spoken to speak about spoon carving being like a relaxing thing to do and a way to kind of unwind and disconnect from whatever else is going on in life and I can understand that but for me like often uh, uh, the more I've kind of paid attention to it it's not I wouldn't describe it as relaxing and actually quite the opposite I have quite a like energizing that happens and I'm kind of trying to get myself to yeah to relax and maybe stop and enjoy it more but same with this cooks or I had recently it was a lot of work but I just sat down and I wanted to kind of see what would become of it and I just yeah get into this kind of frenzy if mm-hmm. you can imagine yeah where I'm really like da, 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 and I know mm-hmm. I should have a break and I should get up and stretch but I just can't I just don't seem to want to stop so yeah, that's kind of an interesting question, I think. Um, yeah, how how was it for you then? Like, do you feel it is more of a a relaxing thing you do to take your mind? Or how do you feel when you're carving is maybe a simpler way to ask the question. What I, what I love is if I'm in the flow mm-hmm. where, where, um, where I'm engrossed and I'm figuring things out and um, I'm seeing things and my hands are, are uh, moving in ways that I don't have to be super conscious of, but yet I'm conscious of it. So the more I carve, the more those times happen to me. And, and when I come out of time where I've been in the flow like that, then I feel renewed. 
Uh So it's not that I was relaxed or something when I was doing it. It's just that I was um, like, like everything about me was integrated, Uh you know, my emotions, my body, my mind, and that, that you lose track of time. Um, And, and that is healing and renewing for me when it happens. And the more, the more that I, the more that I practice and work and and the the more that it happens. Um, It is important to be very mindful of your body, um, especially as a co-roser. You can be just way too hunched over with your neck over, you're looking close, you're pushing into something. It's very tiny work and uh, it can get very, very, uh, sore and have even back trouble and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm trying to be a lot more mindful of, of, um, what is my, how can I improve my technique for, for my body? How can I take more breaks? How can I drink more water? How can I stretch? Um, and, um, and that's the importance of that is something that I've learned from the carvers that, that have been at this for a long time and the things that they have to do to take care of their bodies and, you know, spring pole lathe turners, their standing leg is, it's really hard on them. They can have real back trouble and sciatica and, you know, and, and really have to, to, to slow down or stop doing it um, because it's so hard on their body. So, um, so I try to be mindful of those things. Um, And, uh, Right now, I'm trying to figure out ways, more ergonomic ways to colros. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but mostly, um, mostly, I would say that I am relaxed after I carve. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm so relaxed while I'm carving. Yeah. Sometimes I am. Sometimes yeah. I am. But, but it it settles me. Yeah. Um, my, my partner, Aaron says, Oh, if you've had a rough week and you can spend time carving, then it, you know, it's, I can just see that it's good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. My, my challenge is also like, yeah, giving myself the time. I have a little bit the problem with a family where I try to kind of fit it in when it's probably not uh not the right time <laughs> you could mm-hmm. say where you know you you've got to leave <laughs> you've got to go to a meeting and I'm there like ah, rushing it and that's obviously not the best way to ah yeah give myself the time and the space to really yeah get into it on all these levels as you're as you're talking about so that's something I just but do it at the meeting take it with me <laughs> yeah seriously yeah. seriously <laughs> that might be the solution yeah yeah, do it. <laughs> do it until someone says you can't. And then if they say you can't, then say why. Yeah, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like maybe, but it might be dis- distracting me. I don't know. That's same with the kids. If I'm at a meeting, I don't know if it will, uh, yeah, be too much on my mind thinking about people wa- watching or this or that. I don't know. I may I need to try, first of all. Yeah. Try, try it and- in a low stakes environment to <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. Would you have any would you have any recommendations you share for anyone listening if they're not already following you? 
I really like your profile because, yeah, you share a lot of tips and insights and you share a lot of not just carving, which I think is quite cool. It's not like like uh, some sort of manicured and photo edited <laughs> thing. It's completely the opposite and really going through. I, I tried to sc- scroll to the end or to the start of your Instagram because I always find that fascinating. What's the first post? Where does someone start? Did it start with the spoons? Some people have all this stuff and it just slowly morphs into just um, carving in a spoons thing. But as I was scrolling down through your feed to get to the bottom, I kept getting caught. I kept like, what is happening here? <laughs> There's just so much happening and hilarious little videos. And I, it took me so long because yeah, there was a lot of entertainment there. Good. <laughs> yeah. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of useful information too. That's what I was also getting at a lot of. Yeah, useful information, coal roasting and, and carving and the things around it. So, Simon, did you catch, I, I think one of my favorite silly things on there was this summer when I did the um, the the dancing in my tie-dyed onesie on the blue floor of the yurt. If you missed that, you got to go. <laughs> I did. See, there's so much. I, yeah, I, that, one is, that one's choice. Yeah. Just choice. I saw a funny one. I, it was a room full of people at um, some sort of workshop, I guess, and it was some sort of music jam, and there was like a hose being played and some sort of percussion, and oh, and <laughs> I didn't, and there was no real explanation. I just click on this. That video was up at North House. I can't remember what that was, but I, yeah, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you quite often capture these yeah moments of life and share it there. I think it's really refreshing in a way yeah just to not think about it too much and just put these funny moments out there because uh yeah why not i i I enjoyed it (laughs) good yeah and then like broadly i don't know if this is too broad of a question but for people because you have a lot of experience with the coal rosing like do you have any kind of tips like good ideas to do don't do this uh, yeah, I don't know if this is too broad, but for someone starting out with coal rosing, would you say, yeah, practice somewhere else first or first yeah. practice simple patterns yeah. or I don't know. I don't know if the question's too broad. Or no, not. it's not too broad. Um, when I teach coal roasting, um, I, 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 the, the things that I help students as they start is, yeah, learn on scrap wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, tongue depressors are perfect things to practice on because they're not unlike a handle of a spoon and they're not valuable. And if you have a nice one, it could be a bookmark, you know, what's a, what's a tongue depressor? A tongue depressor is a, it's a little piece of wood, um, that is like, oh, like a millimeter thick and it's like, or a popsicle stick, Uh, like if you get a frozen popsicle, the wooden thing inside that okay what one. a doctor a doctor might use to yes. like ah, push your yes, tongue exactly. uh-huh. okay exactly. i never knew what that was called tongue depressor yeah and you can get those at craft stores or you know mm-hmm. and and they're really good yeah um you can get uh at, at a you know places that have uh like ikea or anything like that get really inexpensive wooden spoons and practice on those 
Yeah. Okay. You know, sometimes you can get like wooden spoons for like a dollar at a dollar store, order them online, 12 for $12 or something like that. Just get uh, crappy cooking spoons. Yeah. And, and practice on those. Mm-hmm. Um, you can practice on wooden dowels um, so that you can figure out how, how do I do something on a curve? Because that is different. It's very easy for the knife to slip off. So practice on, on things like that. Yeah. Second thing is um, people think that a coal roasting knife is like a sharp pen, but it's a knife. Yeah. And so having knife grips for it is pretty important. And the, the, the main thing that I work on with folks is I think the inclination for people is that they'll just pull the knife towards them. Most of my stuff is pushing the knife away from me with my non-dominant hand. Okay. Um, so I do a lot of push cuts and keep the um, orientation of the knife to the wood perpendicular, a right angle. Mm-hmm. Because if it's, if it's leaning to the right or to the left and you make another cut that's close to that, you're you run such a risk of removing the wood. Yeah. So if it's straight up and down, then you're cutting just a vertical slice into the wood. If it's angled, you're, you're, that cut is going into the wood angled and it could pop out. Yeah, you create so, a chip or a, or a kind yes. of tear out. Okay. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What's, what's the big advantage to the, because I'm one of these people that have pull cutting. I think I like only have done pull cutting because again, it just felt kind of, yeah, like you say, instinctive to do like right. a pen thing. It's something right. I'm familiar right. with. What's the advantage right. to a push cut? You have more control. Yeah. Um, you, by pushing it, um, you're, so I'm right-handed, so I'm going to talk it like my right hand is my dominant hand. If you're left-handed, I make the, the, the translation. So my, mm-hmm. my right hand is the, my dominant hand is pressing the knife into the wood and it's turning the blade because if I, wherever the blade is faced, that's where the cut will go, whether you're pushing or pulling. Mm-hmm. So in order to make a curved cut, you have to turn the blade. Yeah. That's very hard to do for me, pulling it towards me and at an angle, like, like that's not going to work to do a turned cut. So straight up and down. And my hand is, is, is turning it like a little tiny steering wheel. Yeah. Uh, my dominant hand and my index finger in a push cut, my index finger is the brakes. And my left hand, my non-dominant hand, is studying everything. It's holding the object. And it's, it's my thumb is pushing the blade. Your the, thumb on your non-dominant hand. Yes, is, is pushing the blade. Yeah. And, and so I can make very small, minute cuts and turns like some of the stuff that you see in in the in the animals uh the otter that i posted recently um it's it's like doing the face and the ears and the eye and the nose that that's all with these little push cuts because it's such um 
precise small work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so two hands. Try push cuts. Thumb thumb being what what moves it. Uh, on your non-dominant hand, your dominant hand is steering and stopping the cut. And if you give that a try, you, I think you'll be very interested in what happens. And then the last thing that is pretty helpful is in your in your pieces that you're experimenting with, do block alphabets because you have to stop. Like the difference between a P, a lowercase p, and a lowercase b is not very much if you can't stop where the knife is, right? Uh-huh. So it, it is really good practice because you know what it's supposed to look like and you can do it at different scales and there are different, uh, you know, some like start with straight letters and in capitals like H's and uh-huh. T's and, you know, stuff like that, the, the straight letters. Then you can move to letters that have angles in them like, like M's and W's mm-hmm. and then try um, ones that have curves in them. And the last ones to practice are S's. Because that that you're uh-huh. you're switching direction as you go in that, and just practice doing those. Keep the blade upright, yeah, and uh, see if you can see if you can first do it just on a board, then try it on a on a tongue depressor popsicle stick, whatever that is, and then try um, then you can try it on dowels and uh, cheap cheap uh, cooking spoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. So really just yeah, pro- progress the level of difficulty kind of needed. Don't jump into yep. at the deep end. What, uh, what about then like lettering and things like that can be difficult also for the fact that, yeah, you know what it should look like. So maybe that's good to kind of keep you honest, but other yep. things where I've kind <laughs> of, <laughs> you can Keep's see honest. all the you can see, because I'm thinking um, like nature-based things like flowers, which I've done some, I feel like that's quite forgiving because they mm-hmm. don't have these straight lines. So um, maybe that's something like I feel like the end result for me can look a bit more impressive with something like a flower because, yeah, it's a bit forgiving, the the shapes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Animals are the other end of it where if you – put the eye slightly wrong like faces can quickly look just wrong but but flowers and things like that Uh, do you think that that's there's a truth in that do you do much um yeah i think so yeah um and you know it's um even though it may, may not seem like like uh i've been talking like this but don't let perfection be the enemy of the good yeah you know try some things yeah. Um, what I think is tricky about coal roasting is when you're working on something that you've put a lot of work into, and then you're trying to decorate it because because it it can you could have something really nice and then just ruin it because your knife slipped or because you got an eye in a goofy place. So just work up to it and yeah. uh, keep developing techniques. And and you know those. The, the crappy spoons that you carve that they're like, oh man, I'm just going to toss this into the, uh, into the fire. Practice yeah. on them. <laughs> yeah. Practice on, practice cold roasting on them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the letter forms, the other thing about keeping you honest, that is very funny, but boy, it's very nice to give someone a spoon with their name on it. 
Yeah. It's very nice to give give someone on their anniversary something with the the, the date on it. Yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah. Practical I've got one recently parts. gifted yeah. with my name from from a friend of mine. Yeah, that is something like, yeah, while they were making it, they definitely had me in their mind. It wasn't just yeah. a spoon that got given. You're yeah. totally right with that. It's yeah. very special. And is there anything you could say about the um, types of wood? Does that make for like a beginner? Does that make a difference once you're working with green wood? rather than like a popsicle stick or some other material. Yeah, is there a big difference? Would you recommend a certain type of wood? Um, the wood that, that I have access to the most is birch and maple and a, and a species related to maple called box elder, um, all, which is different than boxwood, box elder. Um, it's in the maple family. All of those are pretty good for coal roasting, but but they can have open grain um, mm. and open grain in, um, you know, it, ma it makes a difference whether it's radial cut or a tangential cut. And so just, you know, experiment around and see, see what happens. Um, it can make a difference sapwood or heartwood. Um, most of the stuff that I'm doing is, is um, sapwood in in birch and i i'm so lucky that i have friends that will get me very good birch very straight grained good birch um uh but in what can be really lovely to colros is uh pear and apple uh -huh. ah, okay yep because they're very tight grained they're a very glassy finish so it, it, you know it, it's not always that you can get your hands on fruit woods, but that works. Cherry can be dark to cold yeah. and it's darker over time. Yeah. And I, I uh, walnut would be bad because it's dark and it's very open grained, porous, mm -hmm. grain porous. And oak and ash and things like that would be very bad because they would, they would just be too open porous, and they're not very nice in your mouth because they're so open grained. So yeah, it's harder um, to get that smooth finish on those yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. so so birch maple mm -hmm. um you can do buckthorn we have buckthorn here i don't know if buckthorn is in the uk it's an invasive species here that you can call on um but it's a little stringy um and i'm trying to think what else what but else? i guess you can do it more or less on thing. any wood you just have to once you start cutting into it, get a feeling for, yeah, how is it reacting and, and how, how much pressure do I need? How is it? You yeah. have to have a sensitivity for, right, yeah. as you're doing it, how does it react but to the But mostly it's how it's going to take the pigment. Okay, is the most important. It's not so much yeah. the coal roasting. You don't have to pay mm -hmm. that much attention to grain, oddly, with coal roasting. Okay. Yep. Yeah, cool. Ah, wow. Ah, cool. I knew it would be fun talking to you and I have a <laughs> have learned a lot um i'm trying to think yeah if there's something else i'd like to ask you i've made a few notes here and uh yeah i've learned so much and as i said i only recently had the idea to invite uh, you to chat and yeah i'm glad i did yeah, um yeah cool really cool to me i don't know if is there anything 
that comes to your mind that you'd like to to say or what are your what are your plans then for the next while to travel again and to teach a bit more yeah yeah, yeah. i'm a teacher at heart um yeah. i was trained uh after my hand lettering stint i was an elementary school teacher so i i really like teaching and i like uh being in community with people yeah um and uh, yeah, as you can tell, I'm a I'm a social gregarious person. So retirement is just around the bend, and then I hope to uh, and I hope that uh, the end of uh, the COVID mayhem is uh, on the horizon. And as that happens, then then yes, I look forward to doing more teaching, and I would I I would love. Uh, the possibility of teaching internationally. Yeah. Oh, that would be. What's your experience? Can I ask? Like um, teaching uh, until now, um, teaching in person. Have you taught online at all? I like, have. I have. How does that work? Um. Well, I uh, my my team and I at the museum we teach online all the time, but we're not. Yep. We're not doing physical things. Yeah. Um. I did right at the beginning of the, you know, the first lockdown, April, March, 2020, I did an online axe based spoon carving class for the uh, women's wood shop. It's now fireweed wood shop. I'm on the board there, but, um, and we did it, I think for about six, six or seven weeks. And I, I took apart my living room. I didn't even know how to how to do this stuff. But what yeah. I what I found was that you can do it if you're if you're really planful about it, and you help people set up their cameras so you can see what they're doing, mm-hmm. and and you create an environment where okay, we're all going to look at our spoons. Hold it up to the camera. Let me see what you're doing now. You know, turn it to the side. I need you to arrange your camera where I can see your full body as you're using your axe because I need to make sure that you're safe. So I got to see your whole body. Um, so it was just like this this interplay, and I was I was quite surprised. And one of the students after the class was done, uh, I just saw her uh, a couple months ago, and she said, "Liesel, I want you to know that was the best." class in person or virtual that I've had because of that attentiveness to um, really being explicit. So I had, I took photographs of all the knife grips. And so I'd show the photographs from all these different angles and I would draw what, what we were going to do. And then I would do it with them. And I wound up having a spoon that we had a template for the spoon and we carved it, um, you know, over time, and they did a double. If, if you look back in my scroll, you can see I have a technique for doing two short spoons out of one long um, billet um, because it's so hard to axe safely small spoons. And so I had this technique. And so um, uh, what what happened was I kept I would carve one spoon, take pictures, yeah. and then I would carve it again for the class, and then I would get the next one ready. To, to carve, so I wound up carving about six or seven spoons of the same spoon for okay. that class, and so it was a combination of taking really specific pictures and then saying, "This is what I want you to try," and then doing it with them, and then watching them do it, and having all sorts of photographs about this is the knife grip that I'm using, this is how it works. Now I want you to show me 
yeah. how you're holding it. So it was, um, it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Dear, I guess some of the, some of those things, yeah, you don't know again, unless you try it, right. You have yeah. to kind of be willing yeah. to give it a go. So six weeks. And then was it once a week you would meet or how often? Yeah. For that, once for a that week, six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I've taught, um, I've taught Cole Wilson classes that are, you know, two or three intensive days. I'm going to teach one that's two hours for, for, um, four weeks. So it'll be eight hours total. Um, and, and there are advantages of both of doing Mm -hmm. it in a compact amount of time or spreading it out over time. It depends on the, you know, the time people have and, and then how much they want to practice in between. Yeah. How much, yeah. And how much time they are willing to take it on their own. Right. Yeah, I guess with teaching me, that's a uh, that's another interesting. Yeah, it sounds like you put a lot of focus and detail into yes, yeah, specific. This is what I want you to understand and yeah. being very clear about it. Yeah. Because I'm yep. wondering, I kind of feel like I, I taught myself in a sense of uh, yeah, uh, videos were the only thing I kind of saw. But yeah, more or less, it was trial and error, and I think there's advantages to both a bit, but definitely. Um, specific someone there helping you out like no that's not working because sometimes you can yeah be spending yeah. quite a bit of time doing something yes. that's really not working and someone can yeah quickly help and you. and at worst you can be doing something that's that's really unsafe dangerous yeah and yeah. and it can be unsafe in the moment or it could be unsafe over time because you're going to get you're you're going to wear out a part of your body that's not designed for that strength so yeah. you know and and I've learned that from from my really good teachers, Jane Mickleborough and Adam uh, Hawker and uh, Fred. You know, just going in and saying, "Try it this way." Do uh, uh, no use use your fingers this way. Use this muscle this way. This is a good technique for that part of the cut. Um, and seeing. Like, like one of the things that I just love about Jane Mickleborough was that she'd look at a spoon and say, well, that's a little bit wonky, isn't it? Let's see if we can straighten that out. Like, like give you an actual, like, that doesn't look great. Let's see if we can make yeah. that look better. And sometimes you need to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you do. True. Yeah. Keeping you honest again, rather. Like, yeah. It's, it's nice, can... but like, but it's wonky. Yeah. And, then, and then she would say, and here's the technique to deal yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah, she's, I don't know much about her, but yeah, um, fascinating. Yeah, I'd love to, she's, yeah, like I don't know much from what I've seen. Yeah, a lot of experience in the end product is what I've seen most of is just, yeah, amazing. I guess people who are in the kind of spoon spoon universe know about her and see her work, but if not, uh, yeah, something else with a lot of history with those spoons. I maybe yeah. the few people yeah. we've, we've mentioned, I'll put kind of in the show notes for people yeah. who want to kind of see the things we've spoken about here. Yeah. And um, yeah, put your details. I don't know. I guess lots of people know you too in the, in the spoon universe. You're one of, you're a character that, uh, yeah, some <laughs> people, <laughs> some people know. Yeah. Like I said, I thought it would be fun and uh, it definitely was. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, I, this was I, great, I hope Simon. we get to Thanks. meet in real life sometime with everyone I speak to. I yeah. feel this way. That would be really cool. But it will happen. You. I don't know when, but it will happen. Yeah, maybe in New Zealand somewhere. Who knows? Oh, wouldn't that be beautiful? I, yeah.
yeah thank you for your time and yeah, uh, yeah for, for sharing all that with us yeah have a good day then yeah you too thanks sam simon this was super fun cool thank you bye-bye okay. bye-bye thanks for listening to this episode if you would like to follow the work of Liesl, you can find her on Instagram at RivChikaWarrior. That's spelled R-I-V-C-H-I-C-A, Warrior, all written together. And if you'd like to follow me, I'm also on Instagram at RootSpoons. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do that by buying an Endless Possibilities spoon carving t-shirt through the show notes. Thanks again, happy carving, 